All right. Well, it's been a while, but uh, we're going through Second Thessalonians verse by verse, and we've come to the end. So Second Thessalonians chapter 3, and this morning I will read verse 16 to the end of the chapter. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Paul usually closes each letter that he writes with a short prayer. And that's basically what this is that I just read at the end of Second Thessalonians. It's a short prayer or it's a, it's a blessing spoken to those that he's uh, writing to and it's uh, spoken as, as a prayer. And so this letter is no different. It ends with a short prayer and you would expect it to encapsulate and summarize what is most important to Paul and to his gospel ministry. And so what's most important to our Heavenly Father as well. And it does. So it's a simple passage, but there's really nothing more important for you to hear and to believe this morning than what's in this prayer, than what's, what's in this blessing that's spoken over the believers that were there in Thessalonica and that the Holy Spirit has for us this morning. And also, as I was thinking about this, there's nothing uh, more appropriate for the Lord's table than Paul's central concerns in his ministry, and they come through in this um, short prayer. And so I was glad when um, I saw that this passage would fall out on schedule with the Lord's Supper uh, this morning, because I think it's a very appropriate for the Lord's table. So this prayer at the end, this blessing is about Christ's presence, his word, and his grace to you. That's my outline. It's my title too. So uh, let's look at uh, Christ's presence, verse 16, Christ's word, 17, and then Christ's grace to you. And those are the central concerns of Paul's ministry. So the first one is Christ's presence, verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace. In every circumstance, the Lord be with you all. Do you need peace this morning? Do you need peace this morning? Are you worried? Um, peace in your circumstances, when you look to the future, uh, is given by the Lord. Uh, we're living in difficult times, and you need peace when you're looking toward the future. Peace in your circumstances. Do you have strife in your life? And usually when you do, it shows up with the people that are nearest to you. Maybe the people that you love uh, the most. And so you need peace with those around you. And do you have a troubled conscience this morning? Do you have a troubled conscience and you, it was hard for you to come to church, but you came to church anyway, um, and you have a troubled uh, conscience, then you need peace with the holy God. And you need that peace to register as a settled peace in your conscience. And it'll fill your whole body with strength and with gladness and with joy and uh, vitality. That's actually the deepest sense in which you need peace. The other, the other uh, ways in which you need peace are reflections of that 
deepest sense in which the peace of God, the peace that Christ gives, resonates uh, in your heart and resonates in your conscience uh, as well. And uh, I wanted to show you just a number of passages that show you how prominent peace is to Paul's message and, and really to the message of uh, the whole Bible. At the end of Paul's letters, you might not have noticed this, but at the end of Paul's letters, he tends to talk about peace. So let me read you these, and if you're thinking, as I say the reference, um, you might remember that these come near the end of Paul's letters. So Romans 15, verse 33, Now may the God of peace be with you all. And uh, Romans 16, verse uh, 20, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Or Second uh, Corinthians 13, verse 11, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Or Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the letter that was written not long before this one that we're just uh, finishing, says, now, May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what's true of Paul's letters, especially at the end, a big emphasis on peace, is also true of the whole Bible. So the coming one, the Messiah in the Old Testament, what was he prophesied to be? He was prophesied to be the Prince of Peace. That's Isaiah chapter 9 and verse uh, 6. Peace is part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that he gives, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22. The kingdom of God. Romans chapter 14 and verse 17, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Um, this was the gospel message. Uh, so it's, it is a um, result of the hearing of the gospel. It's the first result. Therefore, having been justified by faith, Paul writes, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the message of the gospel. And so when Paul was, or Peter was um, summarizing the gospel that Christ preached, he said, it's the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Ephesians chapter 2, 17, also about Christ. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Even the angels, when they preach the good news, the good tidings of great joy to a couple surprised um, shepherds were singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men of his good uh, pleasure. Colossians 1 20 Christ came to reconcile all things to himself having been having made peace through the blood of his cross. When Christ appeared to his disciples um, the, the very day of his resurrection the first thing he said when he entered into that locked room with them was peace be with you. Peace to you. And then a week later, he said the same thing to him. Now Thomas was there doubting Thomas. And the first thing he said to them was uh, peace. The um, blessing that the priests were to speak over the people of Israel in the Old Testament, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Um, Psalm 85 and uh, verse five, I will hear what the Lord will say for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. And in fact, in sending his son, God sent a word. He spoke peace. He sent a word of peace 
to his uh, people. Uh, Isaiah 48 verse 22 says of unbelievers, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So um, uh, those are passages about peace, and really that's the tip of the iceberg. There's there's plenty more. Uh, uh, and so peace is an important part of the message of the whole Bible, certainly of Paul's ministry, and that's why he talks about it uh, here as well. In all instances in the Bible, both Old Testament and New, peace, the kind of peace that he's talking about, is not just a cessation of strife. And you hear about that, you know, you hear a conflict going on in the world, and we want peace, meaning we want them to stop shooting at each other. We want the strife to stop. Um, and that's what we speak speak of. Peace in the Bible means much more than that. It's not just the putting in place of an uneasy truce uh, for a time. The peace that the Bible speaks of is a wholeness. It's a well-being. It's a prospering. It's a flourishing. It's not just an uneasy truth uh, between God and us in our conscience, but it's a, it's a right relationship, and it's a whole relationship. Uh, and so that's the peace that is uh, uh, spoken of. And it's not just inner peace that Paul is speaking of here and everywhere else, where he has asked that the Lord of peace may continually grant you peace in every circumstances. He's not just uh, praying about and blessing them with uh, inner peace, but peace with others that might prevail as a gift from the Lord of peace uh, himself. That's his uh, prayer. Not just inner peace, but peace with others. In other words, peace in the church. And in fact, if you read chapter three, I won't, I won't, um, belabor this, but if you read chapter three of, uh, second Thessalonians here, he's talking about troubles in the church. That's what he's just talking about. And then he goes uh, straight to this. May the Lord of peace himself grant you peace in every circumstances. It's not just inner peace, but it's peace that might prevail in the church, um, as well. So what, What's his prayer here? His prayer is that the Lord of peace himself might give as a gift. That's the way it comes. He might give as a gift peace and and how? He says it in this way. Might give you peace in every time and in every way. In every time. Um, so your translation might say always or my translation says continually but it literally says in every uh, time and then in, and in every way and in every way. And that could, could be understood uh, in a couple, one of two different ways. Um, one is, may he give you peace in every time, in every way imaginable, in every way that's unimaginable to give you peace, inward peace, outward peace for time, for eternity, every way in which he could give you peace. May he do that uh, for you. Or it may be, and I, I think this is probably it. May he grant you peace in all times, in every way that you find yourself in, in every circumstance that you find yourself. And that's what my translation says. May he grant you peace continually in every circumstance, in good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, in wealth and in poverty, in everything that you find yourself in. May the Lord give you at all times peace. Well, whatever is meant, I think you get the point of it. And it, it, it's this. That the peace that Paul is praying would come straight from the Lord uh, for uh, the believers there in Thessalonica and for you as well is a peace that outward circumstances, however unpleasant they might be, cannot destroy because it's a deep-seated peace. And so that's why he prays, may God give you peace. May, give you, may he give you peace of such a kind that's a peace always at all times and in every circumstance. 
um, as well. So why can a Christian have peace in every circumstance, even in difficulty, even in pain, even in uh, trials and uh, tribulations? Well, Christ said to his disciples on the night uh, before, on the night before they, uh, he went to the cross, he said to them, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And so the, the peace that the Lord gives, he says, he distinguishes it from the kind of peace that the world gives. So how does the world give peace? How does the world give peace? Because they do talk about it. They do understand there's a need for uh, peace, and they're smart enough to understand that you need peace not just in the good times, but you need peace when, it, when things are difficult. That's when you're looking for peace, and the world tries to give uh, peace uh, in that way in a difficult time when, when you can't change the way uh, that things are. So how does the world give peace? And I've thought about this, thought about uh, this passage and, and uh, what it is in uh, Scripture, and I think... The world gives peace through detachment, through the practice of detachment. If you can succeed in the practice of having no attachments, neither loving nor hating anything uh, that's around you, neither hoping for anything good nor dreading anything bad in the future, if you don't care about anything, no one can hurt you and you'll be at peace. And so you sort of remove yourself. Try to try to remove yourself from what's happening uh, away from you. Do you do what I do when I go into the dentist chair? I try to just kind of go somewhere else uh, for an hour and let them do whatever uh, they're going to do. That's that's sort of the way in which the world gives peace. The problem with that is you erase yourself as a person. In fact, uh, nirvana, which is basically what this is, it means a snuffing out. It means an extinguishing, extinguishing of yourself of everything uh, that you care about. That's the way the, wor- the world gives peace. I was at the hospital visiting someone, um, and a prayer came over the intercom, and that's nice. And this is, I think, the only hospital around here that um, would do anything like a prayer uh, played over uh, the intercom for people. But it was the serenity prayer, and I've, I've talked about this before in uh, preaching. It says, uh, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. So the serenity to accept things I can't change, courage to try to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference between the two. That's not. That's actually not bad advice. That, that actually might do you some good. Um, that is wisdom of the world, not foolishness of the world. That's that's some of the best that the world has to offer, not the worst. But if you think about that prayer. It's not really much of a prayer. It's more like more like some common sense uh, advice. It's not the way David prayed. If you read the Psalms, David doesn't come to circumstances and say, well, I can't change this, so I'll accept it. No, he says, help me. Lord, deliver me. Lord, hear my cry. Hear my, hear my voice. Uh, I've come to you in tears. I'm coming to you uh, every night. I'm soaking my my bed with tears and I'm coming uh, before you. That's the way in which David prays. It's not the way Christ taught us to pray. He taught us to his disciples to pray, deliver us from evil. And so the way that Christ gives peace is not the way that the world gives peace. And I I think that's sometimes misunderstood 
uh, as if while detaching yourself from everything so that you can have peace is very hard to do. But if you have Christ, you have the power you need to do that. Uh, that's not the way in which Christ gives peace. Christ gives peace right in the midst of the circumstances, right in the midst of trial, not by giving you an anesthetic uh, from those things, but by teaching you that because of his victory, he turns the evil for good. And so uh, the Bible tells us for a, a believer, this is the kind of peace, the kind of peace that he gives results in this. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And the kind of things that are working together for good are things that he mentions later, like famine, sword, nakedness, pain, trials, death. And none of those things can separate us from the love of Christ. And not only that, but they're working for our good. They're not just something to be ignored. They're actually something to be embraced as something that is actually working for our good. Peter wrote uh, an epistle to the saints scattered abroad as he knew that, uh, persecution was coming and he said to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Have you seen a Christian go through trials that are so difficult? You say, I don't know if I could handle that. And the Lord gives them the strength to, to do it to the degree that they share in the, in the sufferings of Christ the glory of Christ rests upon them and the strength uh, rests upon them and he turns their trials uh, in the midst of it for good. That's not uh, rising above the trials and saying, well, they just don't matter anymore. That's giving victory in the midst of the trials and that's the kind of peace that Christ uh, gives. The Lord went on to tell his disciples after telling them that he doesn't give peace uh, the way the world gives peace. He says, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace in the world, you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. It speaks of his victory. It speaks of his overcoming the things that give us uh, trouble. So uh, this is the kind of peace that Paul is praying about when he says uh, for the Thessalonians, now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. Usually when Paul prays at the end of his letters, he prays to and he mentions the God of peace. In fact, that's kind of a striking thing. Maybe you caught that in all the uh, references that I read and I was trying to get you to see that they're the last chapters of all of those and it's a prayer to the God of peace. Usually God is a reference to God the Father. Uh, this one is a little different in Paul's letters. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance and then he says the same again, the Lord be with you all. And usually... Lord is a reference to the Son. It's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. So just a, a slight uh, difference, but this is a little bit uh, different. He refers to Christ as Lord here, the Lord of peace. And this is a reference to Christ's saving lordship. In other words, the lordship that he has because he died on the cross and rose from the dead. And, and because of that, he is Lord of peace with peace to give to sinners like uh, us. Christ's uh, saving lordship is what is mentioned in, for example, Romans chapter one and verse four it talks about Christ was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, or uh, Philippians chapter two, verse eight and nine, that says that because Christ went to the cross 
God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. It's the name of the Lord. And it's because he went to the cross that he's Lord in that sense. He's Lord with power to save because he went to the cross. It's also what Christ spoke about when he gave his disciples the great commission. And he came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth and on earth. It's been given to him at the cross and the resurrection. It's authority to save. That's the, the authority that he wouldn't have unless he went to the cross and, and uh, uh, rose from the dead is authority on earth to save. And it's based on that and based on his presence with his disciples that he says, now you go make disciples because I've got authority to save and I'm, I'm uh, going to be with you. It's his saving lordship in that way. And so when it says that uh, he is the Lord of peace, it means not just that he has peace in himself, which he does and he has for all eternity. The, the relationship between Father and Son and Holy Spirit is a, a relationship from all eternity of peace. But when it says here he's the Lord of peace, it means not only that he has peace in, it, in himself, but that he has peace to give as a gift to sinners. He's Lord of peace because he's able to uh, give it. And so I think that's a special emphasis for the timid Thessalonians. And I think they were timid. They were actually not that timid toward men because they endured persecution. They did a good job of that. But they were timid toward God, toward God. They believed everything was true uh, about uh, that had been revealed to them. Everything was true about uh, Christ, including the end times. They were expecting that vividly to take place uh, at any moment. But they were timid in knowing that they were saved. They weren't so sure that when the time came for Christ to reveal his wrath on the earth that they wouldn't be caught up in it. And in fact, they weren't sure that they weren't already being caught up uh, in it. And so for these timid uh, Thessalonians, timid in that sense, although they were pretty brave about enduring persecution, Paul prays not just to the God of peace, but to the Lord of peace, the Lord of peace. He's the Lord uh, by what he's done on the, on the cross and the resurrection. And he, then he says to them, and the Lord be with you all. And it's the Lord of peace himself with his presence who gives peace with his presence who gives, that's a big emphasis here. It says, may the Lord of peace himself. And in fact, that himself is the first word that's, that's in this whole verse. It's emphasized. May the Lord of peace personally himself by his presence. May he give you peace in every circumstance. And then as if it's not emphasized enough, the Lord, the Lord of peace, may he be with you all. It's given as a gift. When I was about nine or 10 years old, I loved to play touch football. That was the big game uh, in the neighborhood. And so I spent hours uh, playing touch football. Um, and there was an expression we'd use, go long, which means run as far as you can. And there's going to be a long throw. And hopefully you will catch it. I was usually the one catching it. And if I could pull down one of those long throws, that was one of the great joys of my life at that uh, age. Um, but there's another play in football. Quarterback goes back. It might look like he's going to throw but he hands it. He hands it off to the running back. He puts the ball right into his stomach uh, and, and gives it to him in that way. The gift of peace is always a handoff. It's always a handoff. It's done personally. It's done personally. And uh, the meeting place for that handoff is not high above the struggle that we're going through. It's not as if the Lord says, I'm, I'm setting up a finish line. I'm the Lord of peace. If anyone can detach himself from all the things that, that cause you difficulty and come and uh, find me, 
No, he says, I've come all the way down in order to meet you in the struggle, in the confusion, in the shame, in the sin. And I turn defeat into victory. I turn shame into forgiveness. I turn mourning into joy. I turn death into life because I'm the Lord of peace. So that's the way in which the Lord gives uh, gives peace. So it's a short prayer. It's a short prayer. It touches briefly on the things that are the most important. Christ's presence, his presence to give peace, his presence to give peace. That's what the first prayer is about. I guess this isn't a prayer next, but it's about Christ's word. And it's also very important to Paul's ministry, and it's important to the Lord. Verse 17, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way that I write. So the way letters were written, including letters of the New Testament, the writer wouldn't sit down at his desk with an ink horn uh, and a quill like you often see uh, Paul depicted in um, art, but would get a secretary and he would, the writer would speak and then it would dictate, maybe like they used to do in office settings with a typewriter and a secretary. It's a little bit more like that. Um, and so that's the way in which Paul would do. And so somebody else this is pretty obvious in some of Paul's letters. Somebody else would actually write what Paul would say, but Paul would take up the pen at the end and he'd write it in his own hand. And, um, even where he doesn't say anything about it, that's what he'd do in the letters that Paul wrote. And then the people, they'd understand his signature or they'd recognize his handwriting, just like we recognize somebody's face. We can also, if we know somebody well, we can recognize their handwriting in the same way. And so this would be kind of a seal of authenticity for Paul's letters. And here he not only does that, but he calls attention to it as well. And so this is, um, and, and in fact, he gives his name here, which is unusual, and it's in effect his signature here um, at the end. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. His writing was a little bit larger than most uh, writing, and people have speculated all kinds of reasons uh, for that. But he, he calls attention to it here, and there was actually a problem of forged letters. There seems to be. Uh, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, uh, uh, um, We request that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Or later, verse 15 of chapter 2. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, but whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And so um, perhaps there were some forged letters. It's kind of interesting to think about what they might might have said, but they, they caused the Thessalonians to lose their um, composure. And so Paul says, this is a letter from me. Paul wanted them to be able to distinguish between what is the word of God and what is not the word of God. And I think this is just, it's a small thing, but it's an, actually a very important reminder that God stoops down to contain all of his amazing promises to handwriting, to little marks on a page done by Paul's secretary. And then here at the end, done by Paul uh, himself. And since God gives what is promised himself, like a handoff, not like a long from a distance, remote uh, gift that he hopes you're going to catch, but he gives it to you with his very presence. God has not only contained his promises to his word, but God has confined himself to his word. That's his meeting place with you. That's where he gives peace. That's where he gives grace from his word. As he told his disciples before he left them, he said, I'm leaving and I want you to abide in me. And then he starts interchanging. Yes, abide in my word. 
let my word abide richly in you because it's the same thing. That's the way in which he conveys his presence to his people. In fact, if you could see a vision of Christ in all of his glory this morning, if you could get a glimpse of his vision, it would do you no good. It would not help you to be holy. In fact, it might make you proud. Um, but it would do you not nearly the good as to meet God, not up in heaven, but where he's put himself to be found by sinners in his word and through the hearing of his word. That's his presence in which he gives you peace is when you find him according to his word. That's where the Lord of peace gives peace. In fact, you could ask Elijah about that. Um, and I'd like to read this instead of paraphrasing it. First Kings 19 verse uh, 11 uh, Elijah was told, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a still small voice. And that's where the Lord met Elijah, not in those great manifestations of his presence, but as he's contained in a voice as he's contained in a word. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in a mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And then spoke to him and gave Elijah grace. And he was able to go uh, in the strength uh, of that. And so when I come before you to minister to you from the pulpit each Sunday, I come and bring you not my own idea or some good advice that I've thought of or something interesting to say, but I bring you a word a word of God, uh, a, a word of God. Uh, and, and that's the most important thing I can give you because I'm giving you the presence of Christ himself through his word. It's a, it's an awesome, awesome responsibility given to uh, the preacher of God's word, but it's actually given to every Christian. You might think I would say a preacher can do everything in uh, conveying God's word uh, to others, but I, I believe that there's a kind of darkness that only another believer can reach you, looking you right in the eye. And a preacher, the kind of darkness where the preacher can't get to you because you're just going to think he's preaching to everybody else except for you. And so there's a kind of darkness of the soul that only another believer ministering God's word to you and looking you eyeball to eyeball can reach you and saying to you in Jesus' name, like Christ did to the paralytic man, my son, your sins are forgiven, saying right to uh, him. And then go and sin no more. And so uh, that's another way in which God's word uh, can find you where maybe even a preacher can't reach you. Another kind of darkness of the soul, only a hymn can reach you. I believe that uh, too. And only a hymn writer can go, maybe someone from another century, and he's giving God's word to you, and it's in a way that's been sung into your head by uh, a hundred other uh, believers singing it to you and putting it into your head a hundred times. And uh, that hymn comes to you in a dungeon of despair and shines a light. It's the light of God's word in a, in a way that you could be reached in nowhere else. I um, At family camp, I did almost kind of like a survey asking people what their favorite hymn was, and it was uh, a lot of fun to do that. But uh, one of my best responses was from Steve Roberts, um, who, whose hymn was Abide With Me. And I saw that hymn in a different way. I've always thought of it as a hymn for the hour of death. But he said, it's for times when I feel under attack or cold. And that caused me to see it in a, a different way. The darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, 
help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. And that's a, that's a message from God's word about God's presence to give peace. Perhaps there's another kind of darkness too, a darkness of the soul that even a believer can find himself in, where only the Lord's Supper can reach you. As Christ's word is spoken and another believer comes along and puts a bread into your hand and a cup into your hand in Jesus' name as a gift to help you believe what is spoken. Christ's body is for you and his blood is shed for the forgiveness of sins. So uh, God's word sometimes can't reach you through a preacher, even even through a preacher sometimes. Sometimes it just falls on deaf ears, but you're never out of reach of Christ. He always sends some servant of his, some servant of his words to reach you and to give you peace. And he does it himself. And it always comes through his word. It always comes through his word. So here we find Paul concerned about things that are important to his ministry. He's concerned about the presence of Christ giving peace. He's concerned about Christ's word. And then finally, this is the final prayer that he gives. He's concerned about grace, Christ's grace. And that's verse uh, 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You know that Paul starts his letters with grace. Always grace to you and peace from God, our father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his typical opening. I think it is here in second um, Thessalonians. And, and this is his typical ending. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's what he wants to leave ringing in his, his uh, readers ears always at the end of his epistles. And so Paul chooses to begin and to end his letters with grace. Grace at the beginning Grace at the end and grace all the way through. It doesn't just describe his letters, it describes his ministry. It describes the gospel. And in fact, God has chosen for the leading edge of his presence with you to always be his grace. I'll say that again in case anybody's taken notes. Um, God has chosen for the leading edge of his presence with you. And he's always with you. But he's chosen for, and he never leaves you, but he's chosen for the leading edge of his presence with you to be his grace always. And that's important for you to know in case you lose your way so you can find your way back. Grace is unmerited favor. In fact, an even better definition would be dismerited favor. Grace is dismerited favor. And so grace precludes something. It precludes earning it precludes deserving. It precludes being given for uh, any sort of uh, activity. And so when you lose your ways and you can, uh, Christian can walk into darkness and uh, forget that he's a child of God or doubt that he's a child of God. And what's the question to ask? Do I feel love? I'm cold. I don't know if I do. Uh, do I feel holy desires? Well, no, I've gotten myself into this predicament. Uh, and so if I don't, what does that mean? Does it mean that God's done with me? Does it mean that God never, uh, n- never had me as, a, as his own uh, child? No, the question to ask is not those things about yourself. The question to ask is, do I believe that God is a liar when he says he is gracious to me, when he presents himself to me in his word as a God of grace? Grace is always the leading edge of God's presence with you. It's important to know when you lose your way, in order that you might find your way back, it's by grace. And grace can only be grasped by faith, which looks outside of itself to uh, another for unmerited favor based on nothing that you're doing. 
So and this is why the Bible makes so many outsized claims for faith. Like if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll have the power to move a mountain. If you have even a small faith, a faith that you can hardly even see, you have enough power to move a mountain. And it makes outsized claims for faith even more than for love. It doesn't say that about love. If you have love, even if it's a mustard seed, then you'll have the power to move a mountain. Even though love is far greater than faith. The Bible says that in a number of places. Love is far more beautiful than faith. Love will endure forever after faith uh, becomes sight. Uh, love uh, continues but uh, why is all this said about faith? Why is all this said about faith? Why is, why is that the important thing for Christ always talking about to his disciples about? Oh, you of little faith, as if that's the most important thing when they fail for them to be uh, focused uh, on after their love fails, after their courage fails, after, all, after their holiness uh, fails. Oh, you of little faith. Well, it's not because of faith. Faith is a nothing in itself or almost a nothing in itself. It's because of grace. It's because of grace, and it's because grace is always the leading edge of God's presence with you, and that's true even for uh, a believer. Your love doesn't grasp faith in a special way. It's a result of it. Your good works don't grasp grace in a special way. They're, they're a result of it. The fruit that you produce doesn't grasp hold of grace. It's faith that grasps hold of grace, taking God at his word that he's a God of grace towards you, and that's probably why Paul leaves these struggling Thessalonians with the last thing about grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And in fact, he leaves not just them, but uh, all uh, the believers that he writes to in the New Testament with this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Your love, your good works, your fruit that you produce can give you encouragement as signs, even in those dark uh, times, to say, you know, I've done this before. I've met the God of grace before. I've, I've believed him before, and he poured out his power in me, and I actually can see that. My life is different. My, I've, I see the fruit uh, of that. He's come, and he's given me peace. He's given me power. He's given me holiness, and I see things in my life that uh, 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 cause that. But those are not the things that receive grace, only faith receives uh, grace. And so those are not the things that are to stand between you and the presence and the nearness of God, but it's grace. That's the leading edge and it's received by faith, uh, taking him at his word. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16 says, a righteous man falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in a time of adversity. Uh, and that's the difference between the righteous and the wicked. The righteous stumbles seven times, gets back up again each time. The wicked, one fly in the ointment becomes a mortal wound. He falls and he stumbles headlong and he never gets back up uh, again. Why? Well, the righteous man has an enemy, Satan, who wants to remove the gospel from you, wants to remove grace, wants to remove God's presence uh, from you. But the righteous man, when he gets up, he gets up by grace. He gets up by grace. He gets up by grasping God's unmerited favor towards him. He doesn't get up by starting to deserve again. And so he starts to get up that way. No, he gets up by grace, by grasping grace by faith. And so uh, in the darkest hour, in the chamber of your innermost heart where none can see, the question to ask yourself is, am I relating to God through his grace by faith, through by grace through faith? And that, that is the, the foundation, the rock bottom for uh, for a believer. It's important because the power to live the Christian life of obedience is about living near 
to the Lord. I said that uh, peace was given like a handoff, not like a throw from a long uh, distance. But that's true of all of God's gift. He gives them all with his own hand, with his own presence, with nearness to him. You got to draw near to the Lord. You got to live close to the Lord. And in fact, that's what being a disciple is all about. We're having an emphasis on discipleship for uh, this fall. Disciples live near the Lord. You can read about that in John 1. And uh, some of John's disciples who had been living with John came and they wanted to be with uh, with uh, the Lord Jesus. And he said, come and stay where I'm staying. Come and be with me. Come and be near me. That's the definition of a disciple. So a disciple, or part of the definition of uh, an important part of the definition of a disciple. So a disciple lives near to Christ, walks with Christ. And pretty soon a disciple is being like Christ, is caring about the things that Christ cares about is experiencing all of Christ's gifts, including his power. And uh, making a disciple is about teaching someone else to live near to uh, to him. Because the Lord of peace, we talked about the Lord of peace and how important his presence is and how he gives peace with his own hand from a close proximity uh, as a gift. But the Lord of peace is also the Lord of power. The Lord of peace is also the Lord of purity, the Lord of joy, the Lord of thanksgiving, the Lord of self-control. Lord of true heartfelt repentance, the Lord of righteousness, the Lord of holiness. And he gives all of those things by his presence and the leading edge of his presence at all times is grace. And so that's why Paul leaves uh, his hearers with this when he's thinking of the presence of the Lord with him, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Don't lose sight of it. Don't lose sight of it. Don't convert it into something else so that you start to relate to God at first by grace and then later on through deserving or some other thing. No, it's the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And he says that in order to protect them and to keep them in the power of, of God. So the things that are most important to Paul, the presence of Christ, that's what he was doing in his uh, ministry, the presence of Christ to give peace. That's very essential to Paul's message. The word of Christ. That was very important to Paul. That's why he made sure to authenticate what he was writing so that uh, believers would know how to separate the word of God from any sort of substitute. And then the grace, the grace of Christ as well. Christ himself is present at the Lord's table to give peace. The Lord of peace is present at the Lord's table himself to give peace with his own hand. Why do I say he's present at the Lord's table? Uh, what am I talking about? It's not because of the bread and the cup. Some people think that the bread and the cup itself somehow mediate the presence of uh, the Lord in some way. That's not why I say that the Lord is present at his table. The Lord is present at his table actually because of his word. And you'll hear somebody as, as we uh, take the Lord's Supper, you'll hear somebody with a good, strong voice speak the word of Christ too. That's why the Lord is present at the Lord's table. He's present in his words. The signs, the bread and the cup are given into your hand in Jesus name by someone who is going to give it to you as if Christ himself is giving it to you to embolden you, to give you courage, to believe his words, to bolster, to support, to awaken your weak uh, faith so that you might believe the words are spoken to you are actually for you. The same that the bread was placed in your hand to eat it and the cup is placed in your hand. The, the words are for you uh, as well. And the leading edge of his presence here at the Lord's table through his word, the meeting place is grace. The meeting place uh, is grace. And so the meeting place is faith that simply takes him 
at his word that says, my body is for you. It's really yours. Do you believe that? That Christ's body is for you. And if his body is for you, then his blood also is for you. If his body is for you, then his, how could not his blood be for you? And his blood is shed for the forgiveness of sins. So may the Lord meet you this morning here at the Lord's table with his presence to give peace. In his word and the leading edge of that presence is grace. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Christ, for his presence with us, his undeserving people. We thank you that his presence is given to us according to grace. And grace is from the first to the last. And so, Father, we pray that you give us just a simple faith to grasp hold of Christ, to believe in him uh, by simply believing his word, that his words are true, that Christ is not lying when he says, my body is for you and my blood is shed for forgiveness of sins. And then, Father, we pray that we would not only grasp grace and peace, but also power, purity, holiness, all the things, love, all the things that Christ gives by his presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.